are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover. Greetings and welcome to Cover to Cover. I'm Esther Minia and I will be your host for today. On today's program, we'll be discussing the work of a local poet and educator, Uchechi Kalu. Uchechi Kalu is one of these poets whose words have the tendency to linger in the back of your mind for years to come. Her work is both brutally honest and powerful. Uchechi Kalu is a Nigerian-born poet, raised in Missouri, Texas, and Massachusetts. She spent four years with the late June Jordan's Poetry for the People program. She's also an educator who has taught creative writing workshops at universities, prisons, high schools, and most recently at the fourth annual 2007 Intergenerational Writers Lab. She recently published her first book, Flowers Blooming Against a Bruised Gray Sky, published by Whip Press in the fall of 2006. In reviews, her work has been compared to the famous Sufi poet Hafiz, and I quote, someone who can pour light into a spoon, then raise it to nourish our beautiful parched mouths. I'm very pleased to have Uchechi Kalu in studio with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I was hoping we can start off this interview with your book's namesake, the poem Nigeria 1967. Nigeria 1967. History books never talk about Nigeria 1967, the year Igbo children traded playgrounds for bombs and how our people fled the north when the government burned villages, our homes crumbling in the palms of our hands. My parents never talk about how my dad slept in bushes with a gun at his side or how my mom spent her high school days treating burns caked over like cooked sugar while trying not to take sides over who should live and who should die. And all the politicians say we should move on, put it all behind us and form a new country, even though one million dead, our villages still smell of bombs and blood, our children's ashes have become the altars of our homes. Who will build new houses and bring back our playgrounds? Who will bring back our poets, their words buried six feet below our land? Who will remember Nigeria in 1967 and tell my children so that that our stories become flowers blooming against a bruised gray sky. Which is the title of her book, Uchechi Kalu, who's in studio with us today. Uchechi, can you tell us a little bit about the name and why you selected that one? I feel that a lot of my experiences in my life have been me going through some really difficult things and figuring out what to do with them, looking at, okay, this is where I've been, this is the territory I've walked, how can I transform it into something else, something livable and something that can help me go forward? And I thought of this title because um, it also speaks to what's true in this poem because we go through life and we experience so many things, oftentimes horrific, and we're trying to figure out what's hopeful in it. Where are the flowers against something where you wouldn't think flowers would grow, which is a gray sky. And can you talk about that? Because writing has been an outlet for you to sort of deal with the complexities and the hardships and all the difficulties that 
people are dealt with and I think um I think maybe that's why I'm so drawn to your work because it's very personal you can't help but feel like for me every time I pick up the book and I'm reading a poem I feel as though I'm a confidant you know like a you've just let me in on a very deep dark secret well, I'm glad that's what the book does for you. <laughs> I'm hoping it does that for so many other readers, and that's great because that was my purpose. That was my hope. When I first put together a couple of poems, maybe 30 poems, half this size, I bound them together. I was a sophomore in college, and I'd been through quite a bit, but I hadn't really gone through the stuff that would really call upon me to, you know, to dig deep and find within myself the strength to go through. So I I grew up in a family that dealt with so many of the difficulties of immigration, dealt with poverty, dealt with the complexities of parents who worked at McDonald's and Jack in the Box and yet had college degrees. Um, I also grew up in a family where in some ways my parents taught me so many things about self-esteem and about um, how to see the world. And in other ways, I dealt with serious forms of physical abuse and verbal abuse from my father and um, sexual molestation from my brother. And this was all by the time I got to college. And by the time I started to put some of these poems together, I I was writing about my younger brother who was dealing with the juvenile justice system at the time. I was writing about being molested and what that experience had been for me and I found an outlet to do that and so um, my life has been about taking those experiences and saying okay this is what I've been dealt in a way but what's possible here and being able to write gave me the ability to have faith in possibility so by the time I um, feel I had finalized a lot of this book I'd lost my younger brother to a car accident the day before his 18th birthday. And I'd lost my mentor and friend, June Jordan, two people who I definitely felt were going to be there when this book came out. So I feel that writing for me has always been about possibility and about what happens to us when we choose to name our experiences and give them life, especially in a culture where so many things are taboo to talk about violence um, against women, sexual assault, and the individual whose experience is shamed. And in doing this and writing this, I'm saying, no, as a community, we should all listen to it and take a collective responsibility so it no longer falls on the individual. And it is that. I think it's, it's all that and more. And, and a lot of times people will say, these stories, they are your stories. And I know as an educator, this is something that you try to convey to your mentees to have that strength, to go ahead and vocalize that, whatever that might be. How do you respond to folks who say, you know, this isn't your story alone? You know, I mean, it's awfully personal about your father, your brother, mm-hmm. your mother, and, and all those complex those those deep deep layers that sometimes not everyone wants to be, have exposed. How do you go back to your mom and father, and how do you deal with, with knowing that the deep skeletons have been pulled out of the closet? Well, <laughs> there are two ways. One, um, one thing that gave me the strength to do this book is that every time after a reading, there the people come up to me and say, "Thank you for saying that." I don't have the words to say it. I'm I don't have a stage, but thank you for doing it. That's my story. Um, it's those moments, moments like that, that say, okay, it's risky. And yes, there's always risk when you reveal yourself and you become vulnerable. But those moments 
give me the strength. And the second thing is I've been very surprised in this process. Um, part of how I've dealt is that I struggled for a while with my family. My mom and dad, they knew I wrote, but they didn't really know, like they hadn't really seen a lot of my work and didn't, hadn't seen me perform. And in putting this book out, I chose to talk to them about it. I chose to tell them. And actually, it's given me faith in what's possible when we name the truth because um, my mother, she is very excited. <laughs> and <laughs> I think for her in some ways, it's vulnerable, yes, and she has her feelings. And when I did a chapbook version of this book, she um, she had... It concerns. She talked about pieces that she didn't know if I should put out there because um, even culturally as a Nigerian woman, things that you're not supposed to say. And I've learned a lot from the process of putting it out there and just letting people be. And she's um, she's very excited now and she's looking forward to all the all the publicity that's happening and I think for her knowing where she comes from a small village in southern Nigeria part of her feels like she's achieved the American dream because I don't think she ever dreamed that anyone would really want to listen to what her daughter had to say and it's a beautiful collection the book is titled flowers blooming against a gray sky it was recently published back in the fall of 2006 published by what press and it's divided into six sections. Clash with the American Dream, Today I Take Back My Name, Tasting Home, Tiang Poems, Shedding Skin, and Dancing with My Brother. Can you talk about how these sections came to be and about the themes that they address? Yes. Um, as I said earlier, when I first tried to put together a collection, it was just a bound, eight and a half by 11 reader um, bound book, and um, it was about half the size. And it even had a different title. And so many of the sections came together through my younger brother. When I was in college, I started writing about him. It was it was my, my form of prayer. And I thought somehow I could at least tell his story through my writing. So I realized a lot of the poems were about him. So that's how I came up with the sections about him. And then that was while he was still alive. And then by the time he passed away, I felt that the book wouldn't be complete without a last section about him and about some of my process going through his funeral. Other sections, like Shedding Skin, just about the process I was going through by naming so many of the things that I had experienced that I had never, ever given voice to. Um, today I Take Back My Name is inspired by writing a poem about... Um, the teachers and friends that constantly said my name wrong in school and the ways in which I was part of that um, because there weren't that many African children where I lived and wanting to be American and what that meant. And um, Tasting Home, the title comes from um, my sophomore year in college when I first wrote a poem in my native language, Igbo, uh, which is a language that as kids, we spoke some of, and then we lost due to um, our parents wanting us to grow up and speak English very well. Um, Tang poems, I learned a style of poetry from the Tang dynasty in China and decided to title that 
because all of the poems there are tongue poems. So each each part kind of came little by little, and it's kind of my feel gives voice to my genesis as a very different person and as a person growing through these experiences. And within those, it ranges and fluctuates from very political to, some would say, uh, angry and confrontational. Others would say witty. You have poems that are very like content-heavy that are dealing with politics, such as the death of Matthew Shepard or the poem for Amadou Diallo and a message to Shaoil and Ode to the Ice Cream Lady, which in itself kind of shows the range of uh, topics and themes that you're dealing with. One of those poems that sort of addresses both of those. So I'm hoping you can go into My Angry Poem. Yes. Which captures would, all of that. I would love to read that because it makes me laugh. And that's a it good makes thing. makes me laugh also. That's a good thing. My angry poem. If another white man asked me why I write angry poems, I'll ask if he was listening at the last reading. I'll ask if he heard the poem about petunias or daffodils or your eyelids closing next to mine on the first day of summer. If he still says, it's the way you read it, I'll ask if he heard the haiku. It was only three lines, and I even whispered, I'll promise to wear brighter lipstick next time. Maybe I'll try red. My usual purple darkens the mood. If he isn't angry about something, I'll ask if he's read the newspaper lately. If another white man asked me for my number after telling me I write angry poems, but I still look pretty good, I'll take his number, make him take me home to mom and dad, and see if they think I'm happy enough to qualify as his girlfriend, because he wouldn't want to carry anger around with his cell phone and briefcase on his way to downtown. When you, white man, ask why I write angry poems, I want to ask you if you think the president is angry. Do you have to be angry to send planes to bomb and bulldoze homes, then apologize for the human casualties caught in the crossfire? But I must remember that he is not angry, just diplomatic. It doesn't matter what I say. You've already decided that I fit the description of an angry black woman, except in your eyes I'm a bit different because I give you an erection. <laughs> but white man, I'm working on it, meditating, asking the gods and goddesses to help me release my anger. See, there's yoga for anger, stretch management classes for anger, meditation with green tea for anger, even bilingual classes for anger. So next time you come to the reading, I hope you can tell I'm working on it. <laughs> oh, it makes me laugh every time. It's such a great piece. And Thank it gets you. the whole audience going as well, if you ever see her live. I think that poem is pretty telling in many ways because it talks about, it kind of goes into the role of a writer and how can you how can you differentiate between what you feel and what's out there and, and not have that reflect in your work, which is leading up to my next question is I want to talk about the intent of writing mm -hmm. and um, your response to that. For me, it's important that each piece I write have a purpose, that there's some connection between me and whatever it is I'm talking about, whether that's a wonderful tree on a summer day. Um, why, why is it important to me? And I think that um, that drives a lot of my work. And even when I teach, I, I tell students and participants, what is your purpose? What do you want to be absolutely clear by the end of this poem? And I say that because 
it's possible to have a clear purpose and let that guide you. And it allows you to know where you're coming from and allows your audience to know where you're coming from. But it also leaves room for comedy, for things to be funny, even if you've been through quite a lot, because that's the reality of life that even sometimes the most horrifying, awful things have their days where they are just funny and we have to laugh at them. So that's where I try to come from in each poem. And it's also helpful for me to remember that nothing I'm writing about is new. I mean, it is my experience, but women in the past have gone through similar things, children in the past. And that's very helpful because it gives me a sense of why I do this work to remember that it's not just about me and it's about saying, having a bigger vision and saying something and getting on a stage knowing that women who look like me don't have the ability to get up on a stage and have people listen to them around the world all the time. So if I'm going to do that, to do something with it and to have a purpose. So just to add on that, because I think in many ways, sometimes we're so closed up as individuals and we have these walls and, and everything else. And there's just it, it's just chaotic to live in such a crazy, fast paced time. And I think we all deal with our own issues in our own way. And I think one of the things why I'm so drawn to poetry, spoken word, things of that sort, music art it's a very visceral experience and when you go to an event if you go to a poetry reading or walk through the museum sometimes you're reminded to stop and feel Mm -hmm. because sometimes we have the tendency to turn that off and i think that is why i'm so drawn to it because it's just like a like poets and artists that are just these vessels for uh, emotion human emotion that sometimes we have a tendency to shut off and so i'm i'm wondering if you see yourself as that, not so much an educator, but like as this visceral entity to sort of tap into other people's um, emotions. Cause like you said, to relate with folks who don't have the ability to, to cry or to write. I do in a sense. Um, it's, I feel like i am been given this gift and there's a responsibility um, to use it and to use it well. And I also feel the amazing thing about performance is that you know, you get a chance to get up there and you're kind of, you're asking the audience to go there with you. I think that um, writing has the power to do this, but particularly reading your work because you get up there and and you read whatever it is. And by the end, at least for me, I'm not alone anymore. I don't feel like oh, wow, this was my particular experience. It was so sad. It's almost like the audience has carried some of that for me, where they've cried for some of it. They've cried tears. I may have cried. They've felt it. And it's it's an opportunity to transform a particular experience and in a way to transcend it because you no longer as an individual have to carry it on your own. It's out there. And whether people tell you or not, there's someone out there who's experienced it, um, whether they're saying they're responding to your poem in the audience or they're just humming, listening to you, and you can transcend where you've been and allow them to say no more to rape, no more to violence against women, no more to just so many of the issues immigrants deal with and to work towards something different. And so I do feel I have a gift and I've am able to um, to take an experience and to put it out there and allow people to collectively transform it and transcend it. 
You're also a teacher, and you've had the opportunity to work with June Jordan. And I'm wondering uh, what lessons you walked away with <laughs> on that. Something, you know, because um, you're also a teacher, but how do you yeah. like, how do you continue in her fine footsteps? Because I know when I first met you, which was a few years ago, you were working with Writers' Corps, mm-hmm. um, which is a great organization here in the city. And um, you've continued to teach, and you do workshops and things of that sort. So how's that been to be a performer, teacher, like wearing those two different hats? Yeah, well, I think that one of the most important things June passed on to me and to the many of us that were in the program is that, and this enabled me to be a good teacher, is that the writing, the performing, and the teaching are all very important. And you need the experience of all of them to really give your best. You need to know what it's like to have to get on a stage and feel nervous and trembling and have your poem crumpled and wearing sweat stains in your palm just before you go up. You need to know what that feels like before you ask one of your students to do that same thing. And that is one of the great lessons I got from her is that the work should stand on the page as well as the stage and to prioritize teaching it. And in terms of working with the young people I work with, I think I've carried that. I hope I have. I know June's June's present in her own way, and I, I hope she's proud because I think that um, I've tried to carry that, and I've tried to also carry um, to my students that I believe that they're all capable of writing good work and doing good work and having faith in themselves to produce, and there's nothing like watching them get on stage nervous and and walk up to the mic and then to feel triumphant afterwards. Do you still feel nervous after all that? I do. <laughs> I do because I'm human and I'm not going to lie. I do because every time you speak, it's vulnerable. Every time you are risking something, I believe it's worth the risk. But yes, I do. I do. I, I still get nervous when I read poems about my brother uh, because he was so dear to me and still is. And sometimes it's hard for me to imagine him not here in the same way. Um, and I think there's a part of me that always will feel that way when I read work about him. I think that's another um, admirable quality about you is your humbleness. Thank you. <laughs> I, I mean, you definitely can feel it. It radiates. I'm hoping you can close it out with the poem, When Poetry Ain't Enough. Yes, I would love to, because um, I think this poem really speaks to why I write and why I encourage others to do the same. When Poetry Ain't Enough. You can tell me racism doesn't exist, but you can't insist that the cops didn't stop my mother, pull her out of the car, handcuffed to the concrete to remind her she's one of the few black women in this town. You can tell me homophobia doesn't exist in San Francisco, but you can't tell me that even in San Francisco, I didn't hear the brother on the corner call me a dyke as I held my lover's hand that night. You can't tell me that as he followed us, 
I didn't think that he just might corner us into an alley and stain the sidewalk red with our lives. Go ahead and show me statistics don't mean much. They're just numbers, and how can I be sure it's true? One in three black men in prison or on parole, they end up dead or locked up under the watchful eye of the state. Try and debate. Tell me they don't qualify for endangered species status. I'll show you my younger brother's tombstone. Maybe you can hear my older brother moan from his cell. See, you can't opinionize, strategize, or theorize my truth, my blood, my story, cause I know what I've seen, where I've been, who's dead, who's among the living. Regardless of what an Ivy League degree taught you about my people and my kind, you can tell me that the World Trade Organization and international policy is doing the best it can for the third world, but you can't tell me that someone in my family isn't dead because there was nothing to eat for days, and filling Coke bottles at the plant can't pay enough to feed a family of seven. This is my poetry. You can't find it in the newspaper. This is my poetry. You can't debate the facts of my life. Pretend it didn't happen. Imagine things different. And I'm tired of complaining about history books leaving me out. This is the poet's responsibility to document and tell the stories. No, it can't pay the bills, fill the gas tank, or even bring my brother back. But it can rewrite history and leave a mark no one can erase. And that was the poem, When Poetry Ain't Enough, by Uchechi Kalu, who is our visiting author for today. The book is Flowers Blooming Against a Bruised Gray Sky. Can you tell our listeners how, if someone want to get in touch with you, do you have a website? Yes, I do have a website. It is www.uchechikalu.com. Also, on MySpace page, myspace.com slash uchechikalu. If you want to purchase the book, the two ways you can get it at this time are um, amazon.com and witpress.org. That's W-H-I-T press.org. Uchechi Kalu will also be performing at When Cities Unite. It's a spoken word music event from LA to the Bay. It's happening at La Peña Culture Center, July 8th at 7 p.m. For more info about that, you can visit www.myspace.com forward slash when two, the number two, when two cities unite. You can also call La Peña, 510-849-2568. It's been an incredible honor to have you in studio with us today. Thank you for having me. The book, again, is Flowers Blooming Against a Bruised Gray Sky by Uchechi Kalu. Thanks for joining us. And we'll close today's program with her poem, I Am Tired of Shame by Uchechi Kalu. I am tired of shame. I have considered slashing my wrist, slamming my fist in someone's face, searching for a truth, a lie, a disguise, anything but me. But I have also considered stripping down naked and looking at myself for longer than a minute. Yes, I have also considered watching myself stare back into my eyes without shaking, blowing kisses to myself for hours. And that was the poem, I Am Tired of Shame written by Uchechi Kalu. For more information about her work, please visit www.uchechikalu.com. That's uchechikalu.com. For Cover to Cover, I've been your host, Esther Mania.
tired of the Matrix? The movie? No, not the movie, but the one you're living in. If so, then hang out with your friends at the Full Circle. What's the Full Circle? Full Circle is a radio show written, produced, and directed by apprentices right here at KPFA. We'll bring you everything from the obscure to the obvious, the hidden and the blatant, as well as all things in between. So be informed. Hear about your world community every Friday night from 7 to 8 p.m. on 94.1 FM, where we'll serve you the red pill with love. This Saturday at 10 a.m., Hard Knock Radio airs a special broadcast from the U.S. Social Forum in Atlanta, Georgia. Join Davey D. to hear the voices of activists around the U.S. strategizing about local and global change. That's this Saturday, June 30th, from 10 a.m., following the Saturday morning talkies. And you are listening to KPFA in Berkeley, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is just about 3.30. Stay tuned next for the special program, uh, U.S. Social Forum. United States Social Forum in Atlanta, Georgia. This is Pacifica Radio and Amark, the World Association of Communities.